Hi everyone, and welcome to The Nervous Herbalist, a podcast for Chinese medicine practitioners who like herbs and want to learn more about their function, their history, and treatment strategies to use in the clinic. Let's get into it. All right, welcome back everybody to another episode of The Nervous Herbalist. Today we got some new stuff for you, and uh, I am Travis Kern, joined as always with my co-host, Travis Cunningham. And we're going to talk to you guys today a little bit about the middle jowl. Do you want to get started, man, with a little bit of physiology of the middle jowl review? Just like what that's, how, how things work helpfully. Yeah, so the reason that I wanted to talk about this in particular is because the, you know, problems of the middle jowl fundamentally um, stem from what we eat mm -hmm. and how those things are processed in the body, right? And so... Of course, everyone's first thought is like, oh, well, we need to know what the patient's eating, what's their mm -hmm. diet like. And, you know, we live in a world now, you know, as one of our teachers would say, that it's sort of, you know, everyone has a kind of morbidity around mm -hmm. their existence, right? <laughs> They're like, the food is full of poison and there's chemicals. I literally had a patient this morning who was lamenting all the, the poison in her food. And I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? She's like, oh, well, you know, it's just these chemicals and these things. And I don't mean to make light of the fact that like what is in our food matters, right? Because it, it definitely matters. But yeah. also, I think when people have digestive problems, the very first thing that they're going to is a food analysis, which is good. But then it gets deep into like, well, what are the allergens in here? Do I have a test? Is there yellow number five? Right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was made in a factory, whatever. I think people get a little bit maniacal about it, a little myopic, really sort of focused in yeah, about yeah, yeah. it. And the irony is that while on one hand, what you eat is a huge component of having positive middle jaw outcomes, the other thing that matters a lot is the analytical intellectual work that is supported by spleen chi. This is something people forget about, right? Like digestion is not just the physical act of turning food into chi, yes. right? It is physical and also intellectual, metaphorical. Like when you read an article and you analyze it and think about it, that's spleen chi, right? When you're intellectually involved in analysis or discussion, spleen chi. So if you first immediately go to your diet and say, hey, I need to analyze the hell out of this diet, <laughs> ironically, you are utilizing the very depleted chi to do the analysis, Indeed. right? Yep. So middle jowl, like in a, in a perfect world, right? Um, human beings are, you know, more balanced, right? Obviously, in all the ways that that means, right? But as modern people, many, many of us are, instead of using our physical bodies to generate our livelihood, we use our minds, we use our intellects, right? Yeah. We essentially rent out our cognitive spleen function right. in order to make ends meet, right? Even people who don't necessarily work in white collar operations, right, also are still thinking, processing, customer servicing, front facing. I mean, mm -hmm. you're not planting corn, you know what I mean? Right. Like it's a yep. different kind of, kind of effect. And of course we notice in occupations and pastimes that utilize a lot of intellectual energy, we see a lot of depletion to the middle job. Yep. And the reason is because in a perfect world, we would spend physical time moving our muscles and our body out in space. Let's all remember that muscle tissue is also the purview of the earth element, yeah. right? The middle jaw is the earth element. And so you'd be out in the world moving physically. And then the food that you would be eating would be, 
cooked by you or someone else, probably grown close to wherever you live, right, would be in season, right? And then you would eat that food and frankly, not have to think that much about it, yeah. right? You wouldn't have to be like, is this organic? Was it grass fed? Did this come from a local farm? Right. Like these are not part of the discussion that happens because in a perfect world, that food goes in, you didn't think about it too much. The spleen transforms that food substance into that which is clear and that which is turbid, right? In the classic discussion. So it's gonna send up the clear, it's gonna descend the turbid, right? And so we go through the digestive process. And in that circumstance, you didn't eat too much. You moved around physically. You didn't think about it too much. The food came locally and was cooked at home. In this circumstance, your spleen is not overburdened. Right. right? Yeah, absolutely. It was able to take what came in and efficiently convert it into what was necessary and expel that which wasn't. Right. How everybody listening knows that for most people, that's not the case, right? And it's just not the case. We not just, perfectly. No. Yeah. And and the crazy part to me is that people who try really hard, they're very interested in this, right? Again, have a difficult time walking the line between overanalyzing and overthinking, which doesn't serve the middle jowl in the, in the long run. So how do you thread that needle, right? I mean, how do you thread the needle between paying attention and being a conscientious consumer and voting with your dollars and all the sort of activist stuff that we talk about? How do you thread that needle with also paying attention, but you know, not too much, right? right. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. And what happens then is when people don't succeed at that, right? So they're working long hours, they're using their intellectual capacity, they're depleting their spleen chi all day because that's what it takes to pay the mortgage, right? They're busy. So they're grabbing quick and go food, things that are processed, stuff from the food truck outside, not really thinking too much about it, it tastes good, whatever. And many of the flavors and compositions of those foods tend toward sweet, right? Sweet flavor yeah. stuff. I don't mean like pastries, right? But I just mean like yeah. chicken and rice is sweet flavor material, right? right? Tortilla, like I'm thinking a burrito in my mind, right? Like a mm -hmm. burrito is mostly sweet mm -hmm. compositionally. And it tastes good, so you eat it, and then you eat too much of it because you probably waited too long to eat. And so now you're starving. So you put down like a whole double stuff, like Chipotle burrito. And then you have that sensation in the afternoon where you're like, oh my God, I'm about to pass out because I like ate all this food. That circumstance is a perfect recipe. And I would say an unbelievably common recipe for what will become chronic middle jowl problems. Yeah. Right. Not in that one instance. Right. Especially when you pulled that off when you were like 19 in college after a night of drinking and you just like hammered and you're like, oh, it's fine. Mm -hmm. But you were depleting the spleen then just mm -hmm. in small, tiny little ways. And it's not going to show until you're 35. Right? right. I mean, depending on who you are, it could be earlier, but it's not going to show till later. But it was happening then anyway. Yeah. Right. It's slowly sort of trickling through. And so that ultimately lands us with the stuff that I treat, which is chronic middle jowl problems. Yeah. Right. And I think it's important to distinguish too. I really do mean chronic, not necessarily like I have Crohn's disease or irritable bowel or like a, like a biomed diagnosis, but that most of your poops, most of the days are irregular and non-formed and don't come at the same time of the day. That is a chronic middle right. jowl problem. That's reflecting something else that's going on in the system. And that's what I spend a lot of my time treating. Yeah. And how many other things can come from that? That could be the chief complaint that the patient's coming in for, right? But then mm -hmm. 
you can't really address any of those things without addressing the first thing. Yeah. Right? I mean, and think of the number of problems. Like if you've been, I'm going to use the phrase malabsorbing, but I don't mean that biomedically, right? So like, okay, the example that I gave, you ate the huge burrito and you felt tired or whatever. Your spleen was not able to convert a certain percentage. We don't know how much, there's no way to measure it, but a certain percentage of what you ate, it was not able to properly convert. Right. And what happens with the food that you eat that isn't properly converted by the spleen, because in this case it's overwhelmed, like it is deficient from your day, deficient from the chronicity of this, and then you just handed this like overworked, sad employee, you just <laughs> handed them like a huge stack of folders and be like, get this done before five, right? <laughs> and it's like, I can't, I can't, I mm -hmm. can't do it. So what does it do? It stashes it under the, the like under the couch cushions. Like right. that's what happens. So it's, I can't process all that came in there and it generates uh, an irregular byproduct that we call dampness, right. right? And dampness in this case is really, it's a, it's a placeholder for, uh, I'm sure, a very complex anatomical physiologic thing chemicals and hormones and fat cells and who knows what right but it doesn't matter for our purposes the biomedical specifics are irrelevant like you have this concept of dampness right and then we got to deal with that dampness when you're young your body will process a lot of this dampness assuming you have reasonably you know strong jing and came from you know a reasonably healthy background like um you'll probably have like beer shits you know and then like <laughs> and then a little burping and then yeah, it's done you know what i mean mm -hmm. but eventually that chronic overuse and over demand of the spleen will reduce those reserves such that the spleen becomes increasingly inefficient. And then by the time you're older, that inefficiency is now happening all the time with basically everything that you're eating, especially when it comes to the quantity of what you're eating. Even if you had the most amazing whole grain acai bowl from wherever the hell, yep. you ate too much of it and your spleen can't handle it. And maybe too fast. And too fast. Because you were reading or watching something mm -hmm. on YouTube. Mm -hmm. You work in some place that gave you a 20-minute lunch. Yep. So you had to like get back to work, you know. So the thing that happens with that chronic malabsorption now is we have all kinds of downstream issues. So the problem is digestion, but now we've got a yin deficiency. Now we've got a blood deficiency. Now we're seeing brittle bones. Now we're seeing hair falling out and nails being weak. Why? person eats, they're seemingly healthy, but like something's wrong. Well, the middle jowl's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the old phrase, like you are what you eat is literally true. <laughs> like, I think people like threw that around when we were like young, they're like, you are what you eat and you're going to be a nerd because you're eating nerds, like whatever. <laughs> but like you are actually composed of what you consume. Yeah. Biomedically or in Chinese medicine, it doesn't matter. Like yeah. you are, everything in your body is constantly being remade from the core resources that go in your mouth. So of course, it's gonna matter a lot what those things are, but it's also gonna matter a lot how your body actually builds from it. Yes. And I think that's the that's really what brings us to middle jowl problems. Is like, you're eating food, you're doing all the right stuff, and yet, problem X, Y, and Z, right? It's because your body has, has reached a point where it can no longer efficiently and correctly utilize what's coming in your mouth. Right. We've spoken privately about narrative and how important narrative is. Like the relationship a person has to what they're eating, part of that is the narrative that they tell them. Like this is, oh, if I believe my food is filled with chemicals, right? Mm -hmm. What what effect? How am I going to tense up when I'm eating that? How am I going to breathe when I'm engaging in that 
um, what's the circumstances that I'm used to eating in? Do I feel safe when mm -hmm. I eat? Mm -hmm. Or do I feel like, you know, there's a battle happening around me because I'm shoving food in my face at work? Yeah. All of these things matter, right? And so it matters a lot. I, yeah. I think the ingredient thing, I don't know, man, I struggle with this because, like, of course, in a perfect world, um, all the food would be local and it would all be organic and right. everyone would have time to cook, right? But, like, we know that that's just not the case. Right. And it's very annoying that even though, like, it's not like the food situation that exists in America is the way it had to be, right? right. Like, everyone's like, well, you know, it's made in a factory. It's going to be garbage. Like, no. Like, <laughs> it probably may not be as good as what you would make at home. It certainly won't be as good as what you made at home. But it doesn't have to be garbage. Right, like, yeah. What is the, how do we make these choices and shape these things? And I do, I do really feel frustrated um, on a personal level and on a professional level that like people who don't have the time, they've got kids, they're working, like their circumstances are such that they just cannot figure out how to make these decisions better. And so they reach for a pre-made food at Trader Joe's or whatever. And it's just, it's garbage, right? right? But what is the option? Yeah. You know, one of our one of our teachers would have just been like, well, they should change their job and move. Yeah, but it's, like, it's just yeah, not practical, yeah, right. right? I mean, like, what does yeah. that really mean? So I, I have a lot of sympathy for people in that situation. I will also say eating Trader Joe's, like, pre-cooked food, like, don't worry about it too much. Like, we're yeah. going to spend this whole thing talking about good decisions and better decisions or whatever. But, like, please, 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 on this subject of narrative, do not moralize your food choices yeah right like big big thing you're not a bad person because you like chocolate covered pretzels from trader joe's like <laughs> oh if only i had more willpower like no man like cut yourself some freaking slack right there are so many more things that we can start to look at to begin to build the habits that yield better middle jowl outcomes and from my point of view better long-term health outcomes even if you still love chocolate covered pretzels from Trader Joe's, even if you're eating tikka masala frozen from Trader Joe's, like it's okay. We're going to try and understand this and what we can do about it. Don't feel like you hear this and you're like, well, I can't do anything about it. I'm just going to keep eating frozen burritos. Like, right. No, right. there are things we can do, right? There are better choices than others for sure, but do yourself a favor and don't moralize your, your food choices. Yeah. So well said, well said. So we discussed, sort of breaking up the disorders of the middle jowl into two categories that are not um, commonly discussed in Chinese medicine necessarily, mm -hmm. but they're useful for, I think, paring down the chief complaint or the things that people will come in for. So do you want to talk about those next? Yeah. So, you know, middle jowl is a huge a huge section. of I mean, it's one of three jowls, right? I mean, it's like mm -hmm. a whole subcategory of what you're dealing with. And a lot of things, as we've discussed, stem from the middle jowl. And so it's hard sometimes you start looking at the formulas, all the different formulas that can treat all of the different things that come out of a middle jowl dysfunction. And like, you know, in some readings, it's uh, almost all of them, right? Yeah, You're right. like, oh shit, like how am I supposed to like manage this? So I started thinking about it. I, I make some subcategories of middle jowl, which I call upper middle jowl mm -hmm. and lower middle jowl, mm -hmm. right? Okay. This mostly comes from the idea that, like, technically your intestines are, like, in your lower jowl, mm -hmm. right? But when people talk about lower jowl problems, they usually mean, like, bladder, kidney, gynecological, genitourinary, right? right? Sure. Not, 
like yes your colon is definitely in the lower jowl but like the formulas for that in my experience at least are more connected to like the middle jowl problem so it's like okay all of this is middle jowl like from your esophagus to your butthole like that <laughs> that space is like the middle jowl be a great name for a workshop exactly yeah esophagus your... to butthole congratulations <laughs> right so i think that that's the space we're looking at so if upper middle jowl problems are essentially sort of epigastric problems so like yeah belching acid reflux epigastric pain sharp stabbing pain sort of like diaphragmatic and above ish like you know i don't know belly button and above i don't know it's it's not like it's not a hard science you guys right it's sort of like a rough categorization of what's going on and then the lower problems what i think is lower middle jaw problems are mostly problems with pooping mm -hmm. right and somehow and what the relationship is between that but it can also include like hemorrhoids and bleeding conditions and stuff because that's all related sure. right? it's sort of like yeah. colon small intestine large intestine and there's a little bit of fuzzy space with um well with stools so like looser stools can be a sort of mixed pattern where it's like definitely a spleen damp deficiency problem yeah. but also a colon problem so again it's not a i wouldn't say it's a hard division but we'll talk a little bit as we get into the formulas it'll become apparent why we decided to make this division but it's mostly to facilitate discussing it because you could right. really, I mean, we could sit here for the next like five hours and talk about the middle jowl. Yeah, right? I mean, sure. there's just so much in it and it's so connected to other things. And is it the middle jowl by itself? But is it actually wood overacting on, on earth? And like, there's just so many layers, right? So I wanted to take the time today to really look at the lower middle jowl problems in the context of issues with pooping, right? Yeah. So like loose stool or hard stool and then urgency and constipation. Right. Yeah. All right. So let's go into that lower middle jowl problems, um, which obviously there's pure patterns and then there's crossover yeah. that are not so easy to distinguish or delineate. So maybe where do you want to start on the spectrum of those things? So I want to first start with some definitions. Yeah. Because this comes it. up a lot. All right, so first and foremost, this is in no particular order, and maybe that's not true. Maybe this is the most important one. <laughs> <laughs> so constipation yes. is a measure of frequency, Yes. and that's all. Right. Right? So in most common parlance, when people say, I'm constipated, they mean I have a hard stool. Right. And that is a misunderstanding of the concept, right? Because constipation is a function of frequency. So like how often are you having a bowel movement is what, like that's what we're measuring is constipation or not, the level of constipation, so to right. speak. Technically. Technically. But when people say constipated, right. they could mean anything. Yes. Right? So in your questioning, you need to decide what kind of specific question you're going to ask that will give you the information that you need. So when I ask this question about bowel movement, I say, how frequently are you having a bowel movement? Right. That is the phrase, yep. right? Any variation from that will probably get you something much less useful, right? And so people will be like, oh, I'm having one once a day, three times a day, every other day, every four days, okay? Well, yeah. four times a day is too frequent, and every fourth day is too infrequent, yep. right? And I think most people listening probably know the sort of like Chinese medicine golden poop is... Oh, you should definitely walk them through yeah, that. Yeah, so though, it's cause... one time a day, in the morning, yep. right? Complete, mm -hmm. formed, easy to pass. Yeah. Okay. 
So formed and easy to pass means the, the poop has a shape to it. You could see it in the bowl. It comes out easily, no straining or pushing. And it's, uh, it's one time in the day, in the morning, mm -hmm. right? And the complete part is a little tricky, but you, all of you listening know what I'm talking about. You've had a poop where the poop comes out and you're like, oh, I feel so much better. That is the poop. That's the complete. Like literally right, everything right. that was ready to go in your colon came out. There wasn't anything left. It doesn't require a lot of wiping. It doesn't stick to the side of the bowl, right? So one it's in the morning, easy to pass, formed, complete. Right. And then the classical description is your head should clear yeah. after you go, right? That's the sensation. Right? Ah, Let the clear yang yes. rise. Exactly. And now everything's <laughs> good to go. Yeah. Now, that's the golden poop, right? I mean, like how many people really achieve the golden poop? It's it's rare. Well, that actually, it's not that rare. I would just say that like people who come in to see me who have digestive problems are not achieving the golden poop. And right. when I tell them about it, most of them are like astonished that that is the standard. Yeah. One of the things you want to desperately avoid in conversations with people about their bowel movements is using any, any, well, this is probably true about physiology in general, but don't ask anyone if anything is normal. Right. Yeah. Right. And if a patient says to you, something is normal, you got to probe that. Yeah. Right. Because if a person has been constipated their whole life, and again, we're using this in the technical definition, meaning they don't have a bowel movement every day, right? Right. They may have one every three days and that is normal. Right. So if they say, so if you say, how are your poops or how's your bowel movement? They'll say normal. That's not helpful for you. Right. You have no idea what that means. So how frequently are you having bowel movement? Well, I'm having it once a day. Great. Yeah. Is it formed? Yes. Easy to pass? Sometimes. Right. right? Okay. Now you have some stuff to probe. What do you mean, right? You have to strain a lot of the stool. Yes, I have to force it a lot. When it comes though, is it uh, hard and dry, soft? Now you're getting into more territory. So right. step one, understanding that constipation is a measure of frequency, right? And phrasing your questions appropriately. Second definition is understanding that, or maybe maybe just a follow up, you can be constipated and have a loose stool. Yes, right? absolutely. Now, it doesn't happen. You know, a lot of people who are constipated have hard and dry stool, but not everyone. Right? They'll have to go three days between a bowel movement, and when they finally have one, it's like sticky, watery, loose. Yeah. Right? Or it's just wet. Or it's just wet. It's not dry. Really, yeah. It's just distinctly not dry. Mm -hmm. And that matters, right? Like the quality of the stool is the next thing you're investigating. So frequency is the first one. That's constipation. The next is quality, right? Is it softer? Is it watery? Is it loose? Is it hard? Is it dry? Right. right? These are the things you're looking at. If it's on the watery, loose side, like are we talking just you know, it's little small pieces, or is it complete liquid diarrhea? Is there undigested food in the stool, uh -huh. right? These are things that are all giving us essential information. Questioning about bowel movements for some people who are new to Chinese medicine can be a little bit uncomfortable yeah, because you're asking them a lot of details about their poop. If you approach those questions professionally, clearly, and direct, people get over it almost immediately. Yeah, like, that, that's been my experience too. Any of the un quote unquote uncomfortable questions if you if you project within yourself a feeling of confidence and like this is normal, um, people tend to just attune to that. Yeah, and right? they just they roll right past it, and now all of a sudden they're with you. Yeah, and they're giving you all kind of details. Yeah, and the next time they come in, they're like, oh yeah, so like we had a patient, do you remember the patient like took pictures of her bowel movement and like oh, brought yeah. pictures so like we could have more details. Like this person was squeamish about it in the beginning, and then all of a sudden they're like pooping and taking a picture, yeah. right? I don't think your patients need to bring you pictures of their poops. But I, the point being is that, like, you can just roll right past it, right? right? So 
that's where I want to start with terminology, understanding constipation as a measure of frequency, and then setting up your questions to get information about the quality of the stool really, really matters. Right. right? The other part of the questioning too, when I do my 10 questions is I, I have, so I have questions about bowel movement and of course urination, but I have a separate set of questions that, or an initial question about digestion in general, right? Mm -hmm. And it played around with this question a lot to figure out like how to ask it. And so what I usually say to a person is like, so after you have a meal, how does your digestion feel? Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, like that's that. the kind of way that I phrase it. Cause if you're just like, how's your digestion? You get the same, like normal, it's yep. fine. Right. But after you have a meal, how's your digestion? is still kind of general. And so some people will be like, oh, it's fine. And then I follow up with like any gas, bloating, gurgling, acid reflux, like I'll prompt with a couple of pieces. Yep. And now they're like, oh, yeah, actually, I do feel pretty bloated after right. I eat. Right. But again, they feel bloated every time they eat. So it's normal. Right. Exactly. Right? And that's yeah. why you've got to probe that information. Yep. Right. So I don't usually like to lead the patient too much. Right? I don't want to plant ideas in their mind, but sometimes with digestion, you've got to give them a little idea of what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What about uh, questions that um, mesh well, like after you have your basic digestion questions, do those lead you into other questions or do you tend to ask your questions in the same order every time? Mm. Yeah, this is a little tricky because, you know, if someone's coming in with a bowel problem. Like they've got yeah. a digest that's their chief complaints, a, a digestion problem. Usually the way that I conduct an interview is I flesh out the details of the chief complaint first, like before right. I do 10 questions and then I jump into 10 questions. So like if it's a shoulder pain problem, then they won't have answered any of my 10 questions yet. Right. Because I'm just getting the details of the shoulder pain. But if it's a digestive problem, they will probably have touched on all these various yeah, aspects. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be organized right to see like what did they already answer and where did you need more probing because it's not going to be in quite as neat an order as if you could ask it in exactly the way that you want right, right. a lot of times if digestion is the core problem then the other thing that i really well and this kind of gets us into this sort of lower middle jaw problem if we're looking at a bowel issue we've got a poop problem and someone's telling me like okay well i'm having four bowel movements a day um, and the stool is unformed, right? My mind is immediately going to deficiency questions of the middle jaw, the spleen's deficiency, yeah. right? Like we've got a wet stool, it's very frequent. Like what's going on here? So I want to know more about temperature, yeah. right? Are they cold? Yeah. Are they cold people? Yeah. This matters a lot with the middle jaw. So if I've got someone who's got loose, wet stool that's frequent, I absolutely want to understand their body temperature. So yeah. what's your what's your sense of temperature? Run hot, run cold, cold hands and feet, right? Mm -hmm. At night, do you notice any changes in temperature? I really probe a lot mm -hmm. into how people's body temperature is, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's going to help me pick my formulas. What's mm -hmm. coming up next, right? Because at its core, the reason I started with the physiology question is that so much of helping digestive problems for me is thinking about or basically measuring the relative values of spleen chi strength, damp accumulation, stagnation, and heat. Mm. Yeah, okay. Those are really like the columns that I'm juggling based on my questions. I need to figure out how much of those things is there. And in heat, because often it presents as actual heat from stagnation, like that right. you would use a Da Huang type formula for. But I also mean cold, right? The opposite of heat, temperature, right. Okay. right? Is sort of the thing. Usually I think about it in terms of heat because that's what I see a lot of, but 
Really, we're saying spleen chi strength, damp accumulation, general stagnation, temperature. Yeah, okay. And Makes so sense. all the questioning is basically centered around that. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. All right, and then, so let, let's say we have a patient and you find out through your questioning that they have uh, loose stools, mm -hmm. right? So what comes to mind in terms of formulas, strategies, approaches? What do you want to know as soon as you hear loose stools? We talked a little bit about it before, but let's go a little deeper with that. Yeah. So if loose stool is the first thing, then, of course, the specific details of what we're talking about, how loose right. are we talking watery, undigested food? Or are we just talking not that well formed? And then I also want to know how consistent that is. Right. One of the things that happens a lot with middle jaw problems is the actual poops are all over the map, yeah. right? Sometimes loose, sometimes hard, sometimes flaky, sometimes watery. Oof, those can be more challenging. Let's assume for this case that it's relatively consistent. Right. They have two bowel movements a day, once in the morning, once before bed. Bowel movement tends to be, um, you know, unformed to loosely formed right. mush, you right. know, but it's not watery. There's no urgency. Right. So these are the secondary questions, right. right? So how consistent is it? Is there urgency here? Like you got to go now. Right. Is there any gurgling? That's sort of I call it the squirrely sensation, like, uh -huh. like there's an animal like in your guts yeah, like, yeah, that yeah. everyone's had when they've uh -huh. had diarrhea. You know that kind of feeling. So I want to make sure I want to get those senses for this kind of person. You know, it's twice a day, which is more than once a day, but it's not crazy. They're also bookended, right? You've got one in the morning, one in the evening. That tells me that there isn't an extreme deficiency that's leaving this person um, with an incomplete bowel multiple times a day. Right, right? sure. Um, because, you know, it has a regularity to it. There's a rhythm. Right. right? The middle jowl and earth loves rhythm. Uh, that's right? a good point. Yep. Even if the rhythm is technically aberrant, right, mm -hmm. it's still rhythmic. And that tells me that there is a kind of strength to the middle that isn't present when people are having three bowel movements within an hour in the morning, and then one sometimes after lunch, and then two or three depending on what they ate, and another one before right. bed. That is a kind of depletion that's more obvious, right? Because the spleen's ability to regulate that middle jowl energy is just gone, right. right? It's just all over the place. Push it if you can, don't if you can't. I don't know what's happening. I just work here. You got to talk to management. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. there's a really intense breakdown in the process. So, um, the next thing that I'm going to, so let's stick with this example. So we've got two bowel movements, morning and evening, relatively unformed, but not watery. Yeah. The next thing I want to get into, so again, frequency was the first question. The next thing that we're going to get into, that's spleen chi is what we're assessing. Now I want to look at dampness, mm -hmm. right? So this is going to get into other questions about the patient's sort of lifestyle and habits around what they actually eat. Mm -hmm. Have they noticed any rhythm? So this, this is when I talk to people about food and I will say, Talking to people about food can be really tricky. Yeah. Right. Um, and I want to put a couple of important caveats out there. In your probing, in your paperwork, in your initial questionnaires, you also need to suss out if people have any history of um, of eating disorder. Yeah. Because that's understanding how people relate to food is really important, and you want to make sure that you're not stepping in the way of repairing history. Um, something yeah. that's improving the eating disorder problem because if people aren't in the right place for it and you start telling them like, well, you should eat this less of that, more of this, it can create a lot of problems. Right. 
I don't want to make anybody paranoid. You need to talk to your patients about food, but you also need to be prepared and understand yeah, what, what the space is that you're uh, walking that's a, in. That's very important. So let's assume that uh, my patient doesn't have any history with eating disorder. At this stage, I'm going to start asking them a little bit about what's their diet like? What's normal breakfast like, right? Um, have you noticed after you have um, you know, dairy or eggs, any phlegm in the throat? Have you noticed any foods make the stool looser or harder? And you know, it's a mixed bag here, right? Like some people know, they've been paying attention for a while. Some people, when you ask them, they'll be like, oh yeah, every, you know, I, eat, I have yogurt and a banana every morning for breakfast. And then I have to like clear my throat for like two hours. After. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, do you think that has something to do with it? Yeah. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, it definitely does. But they never, why would they know that? Right. right? Like they just, oh, it's normal. This is what happens. Right. So I probe about that and I'm going to get a sense then of, is this person tends to eat kind of damp food, sweet flavor. So we're looking at dairy, sugar, grease, alcohol. These are the spaces that we're looking right. at. Yep. Right. I'm also doing a physical assessment. What's the person's build like? Yeah. Right. What's their musculature like? Uh, are they overweight? Which isn't always an indicator of dampness, but it can be. When I look at their tongue, is it swollen? Does it have tooth marks? Are there things that are telling me there's like fluid accumulating yep. in the system? For some very damp people, you can smell it. Yeah. Right? There's, yeah. We've talked a little bit about my nose before, but you don't have to have a very strong <laughs> nose to like to no. smell dampness. You can literally walk out of a treatment room and walk back into a room. Yeah. And there's a there's a wetness, a mustiness. Yeah, that's mustiness. In yeah. I remember in uh, in the clinic at Ocom, I had a patient. Every time I'd walk in the room, they smelled. There was a smell like um, cafeteria mashed potatoes. Mm, that's really specific. Yeah, like just musty and like mm -hmm. kind of like cheap mashed potatoes. Yeah. is where my mind went. Yeah. And it's the smell of that accumulation. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like, again, it's not something, like, the person, the person isn't malodorous. Like, that's no, not like, right. oh, they smell bad. It's just something you would notice if you're looking for it and if you're in a small room with yeah. contained air. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? But, so these, this is how I'm, that's the first sort of, like, physical, I'm looking at tongue, I'm looking at body, I'm looking at food as the sort of, like, macro assessment of dampness, right? right. And then if you're a pulse person, as you are, I'm right. sure you can feel more of the dampness in the pulse yeah. in particular. Mm -hmm. I cannot feel the dampness in the pulse unless like dampness is shooting out of their veins. Like <laughs> otherwise I can't feel it. So I rely on other things to, to determine that. Yeah. So the quality of the stool and its frequency and stuff is one of the ways I'm looking at chi quality mm -hmm. deficiency, relative deficiency. Then I'm looking at dampness and assessing that dampness. And while I'm doing that in my mind, I'm checking off what kinds of herbs I'm likely going to need. At this point, not mm -hmm. really a formula, right. but so much as types. So I'm like, right. all right, this person, their chi is weak, but I wouldn't say it's deficient yet, right? right. So maybe I don't need renshen or huangqi. And if I do, maybe it's just a little dangshen and a little spicy at the end, you know, a little little right. finish, you know, a little... <laughs> little yeah. amuse bouche of, of, of chi tonic <laughs> yeah but it doesn't seem like i'm gonna need a lot of it there the person is not cold yep. in fact if anything they run a little bit warm so probably don't need a lot of warm ganjiang and stuff to like warm up that middle jiao it doesn't mean i might not need something like futsa it's a different discussion right, sure but actual warming like wuju yu ganjiang those kinds of things probably don't need those the dampness factor though is, is fairly high. Person's a little overweight, swollen tongue, uh, you know, tendency toward um, phlegm with, with dairy. 
I'm thinking, okay, we've got a larger damp factor in here. So now I'm thinking of the damp drainers, Sangju, Hopo, Chenpi, right? Mm -hmm. Things that are aromatic and drying, right. right? And this is how I'm categorizing this in my mind, right? Like, okay, imagine that you've got these four, these bars in front of you, right? And you're adjusting the levers. And so if everything was equal before for a balanced person, I've lowered the chi deficiency a little bit, mm -hmm. but not all the way down. Yep. I've raised the dampness bar a little high, but it's not crazy high, but it's higher than the deficiency is low, right? And so then after I've got those two pieces, now I'm going to roll over and I can choose what I want to look at next. Stagnation, if dampness is higher, then stagnation is definitely the big question, right? right. So I'm looking at nail quality, skin pallor and tone, hair. Right. Yeah. These are normally things we look at for blood stagnation. Right. Right. And and you can just definitely look for that too, spider veins and you know whatever. But dampness stagnates. Right. right? It like gets in the way of everything, including blood and chi. Right. So when people have a tendency toward damp stagnation, it can show in these extremity places. Right? right. 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 It's also helpful to take a look too at the extremities at foot funguses, yellowing, mm, discoloration, yeah. that sort of stuff. Is usually an indicator of stagnation either from blood or right. in this case dampness could even be heat technically but anyway stagnation right, right? foot odor and foot stuff odor like yeah. yeah exactly body odor can be a part of it and that will get us into the heat question that's coming next right right but i'm doing a physical assessment of the, the actual physical body looking for signs of stagnation right and then i'm also in the questioning now talking usually a lot about energy mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. So it's easy to think about energy as a deficiency, chi deficiency problem, which it almost is, right? It has that as a component. But dampness creates that classical description of wet blanket over the head, right? right. Like I'm just, oh, my body's heavy. Yeah. I'm not motivated, right. right? And this is an important distinction between physically tired, like I cannot keep my eyes open, I'm about to fall asleep, and I'm unmotivated, don't want to do anything. Right. Right. Those are different things. Oh, they're okay. both they're both tired. Yeah. Like I'm tired, but they're different. Yeah. Okay. The I physically can't keep my eyes open is, is usually not a damp problem. Right. The I'm heavy, my body feels heavy, I'm demotivated, I don't really want to do anything. I just kind of want to be here, like just yeah, sort of sure. sink into the couch and like watch Netflix. That is a damp, a spleen deficient damp presentation. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. And so now, there are other factors because it's Chinese medicine. So it's not just that livers involved, of course, some gallbladder dash on sure, there, sure, other sure. stuff. But like, of course, when you're looking at that piece, I'm thinking, and, and honestly, the more you do this investigation with people, you start asking them those questions, they'll be like, yeah, like, I don't want to, I'm tired. I don't want to do anything. Right, right, right. Are you sleepy tired or like demotivated tired? Like, oh, demotivated. Yeah. Right. Almost every time. Mm. If the damp, the damp lever is high, the stagnation is also going to be about the same height. Yeah. And people tend to be demotivated. From yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember um, uh, Jimmy Chang used to talk about how blood stagnation and dampness go together because the fluid accumulates in the muscles and then it like sits in pockets and weighs on the blood vessels mm -hmm. and then the blood moves more sluggishly and then you get like damp and you have blood stasis mm -hmm. because the blood isn't moving well and then you get stuff like high blood pressure, yep. right? So you see like why diuretics work mm -hmm. like why diuretics are such a, a common thing that's prescribed even from biomedicine's point of view mm -hmm. to encourage the fluid metabolism to to churn a little more yeah yeah it's huge actually like that 
you know, a lot of people think high blood pressure is a heart problem, a cardiovascular problem. In Chinese medicine, what I see is not. It's a damp problem, almost always. Yeah, I mean, there are some exceptions, but, like, it's a water fluid I, problem. We, I see a lot of that as well. Yeah. Like, a, a lot of water. You, you do, you know, you might be able to do a little bit to work on the heart directly or the mm -hmm. function of the heart, but a lot of it is water accumulation or other things. Well, and using Jimmy Chang's analogy, like, the problem is not that your heart has a pumping issue. It's that the vessels are constrained by the dampness. Right, exactly. So, like, yeah. the heart doesn't need fixing. The dampness needs removing, Yeah. right? And then, okay, now the stuff's going to work. And it's important, right? Because, again, digestive, so we call these, broadly speaking, metabolic problems, right? Yeah. So digestive stuff comes through the door, but it is very rare that it's alone, right? It's mm -hmm. almost always mixed in with any number of things. But most of my patients would biomedically be considered like people with metabolic issues, quote unquote. So right. they have uh, weight gain, uh, they have bowel problems, they have high blood sugar, right? So they tend to be, you know, pre-diabetic or diabetic. Um, they have high cholesterol um, and they usually have high blood pressure. Yeah. Right. So that combination of things all in this constellation that we're talking about are spleen chi deficient damp accumulation problems. Yeah. Right? Those yeah. three things, spleen chi deficient damp accumulation, i.e. stagnation problems, right? Okay. So if we're, if we're more on the chi deficiency side of things, mm -hmm. where does that tend to go with herbs? Like when you're thinking of herbs and then maybe formulas off of those herbs, mm -hmm. right? Where does your mind tend to go? If it's more like that, first of all, symptoms, it sounds like the person is more demotivated, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And still tendency toward looser stool or mm -hmm. wetter stool. Mm -hmm. Does that change at all based upon body type? Does the body type tend to make you think it's more likely one way or the other? It does, yeah. yeah. So body type where we have like people with larger body mass with soft like tissues yeah. and the, mm -hmm. the tongue is swollen, like without doubt that the chi is deficient because that's why they're accumulating dampness. But the, the core problem is going to be to drain and transform the dampness uh -huh. before we tonify the spleen. Uh -huh. I mean, you could try and tonify your way out of it, but it's going to take however many years it took them to put on that extra right. hundred pounds. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it, sure. It's a long, long game to only go that way. And, and probably much of your herb is going to be pooped out in five loose bowel movements per day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah, sure. the middle jowl is just not handling itself well. Right. So when I think about like that constellation of things, the damp part of it, you know, in this, in our little example, right, cheese slightly deficient, damp is excessive, it's stagnating the system. Oh, I also wanted to add in for male body people, erectile dysfunction can also be a function of accumulative dampness. Oh, 100%. Right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Even in people who are not metabolically weak, who don't mm -hmm. seem to be overweight or things like that, like um, really systemic damp accumulation can negatively impact the ability to um, get and maintain an erection. So a lot of people think like, oh, my testosterone's low and I need to right. use yang tonics to just yeah. like get a better erection. But actually, no, I mean, maybe, but probably also dampness is a factor there. Right. You know? well, in, in, even in formulas like uh, Jingwei Shen Qi Wan, you have, you have some nod to yang qi with futsa and some kind of cinnamon, but you also have Huling, Zexia, mm -hmm. you know, you have things in there that are promoting the movement of water. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. So the last factor in our four level factor for assessment is temperature. In this case, 
um, heat or cold, right? Right, sure. So the cold assessment is, in my mind, actually usually done with the qi assessment, right? Mm-hmm. So if someone's qi slash yang is weak, they're going to be cold. Right, right? Or sure. Or colder. Okay. That's the tendency mm-hmm. to go for. So if that, if my qi lever in the example that we were talking about, if I had lowered that even more, one of yeah. the things that would determine me lowering it more was that they're cold. Right? Sure, right. They run cold. Their abdomen is cold. They have cold hands and feet. They hate the cold weather. Like all of those things are like, mm, qi is definitely weaker. Yang yeah. is weaker here, right? On the heat side, this matters a lot. Some of it, again, initially is going to be physical assessment, complexion, redness, tendency toward like that kind of ruddy, bright, sort of sweaty, sure. hot presentation. Yeah. Probably tells me a little more heat in the system. Yeah. Any burning with defecation, bleeding, blood, hemorrhoids, any of that stuff, strong odor. Mm. Those are the other things that I'm inquiring about, right? So if I have any suspicion that there's some heat in the system, which if there's dampness and there's stagnation, you should absolutely assume there's some heat somewhere and probe it. Right. right sure. And the easiest way is usually um, to start, since we've been talking about poop with the patient all this time, is odor, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I usually phrase that question because you can't ask someone, like, does your poop stink? Yeah, like, right. Of course it does, right? It's, it's feces. But I usually say, like, is there any particularly strong odor? That's a, that's a really good way to ask that right? question. Is there any particularly yeah. strong odor? Because people know. Like, everyone knows. If you, you've eaten different things, you're in a different digestive state, like, your poop doesn't always smell the same, right? Right. And a particularly strong odor will tell me that there's some extra heat in that lower right. jaw. Are you embarrassed to leave the, the restroom yeah. afterwards? I mean, basically, right? You know? like, <laughs> that is that is the thing. Like if someone's, you know, if you say, is there any particularly strong odor and they're confused about it, you can find a tactful way to essentially ask that. Right. Right. Where you're like, do you have to use a lot of air freshener? Yeah. Light do a you match? carry a match yeah. in your back exactly. pocket? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it also usually comes through with flatulence as well, right? So if people are yeah. passing gas, it's very strong odor. That's another way to tell, right? Yep. Of course, tongue is so important. I want to talk about this too for a second. Tongue, so I use tongues a lot. You know that in general. The thing about tongues is, in my experience, they don't change very quickly. Yeah. Right? So mm-hmm. it's, I always think it's funny when you read in the text, like for an acute cold and flu, where it's like, right. tongue is red and dry. I'm like, right, right, right. probably not, actually, like, <laughs> unless it was already red and dry. You know what I mean? Because, like, yeah. tongues don't change because you got a cold. Right. At least I don't see it change that way. Um, but what's amazing about tongues is they represent the sort of longer standing norm right. of a body. So when someone sticks out their tongue and it is redder than it should be and swollen with tooth marks and a center crack, right? right you have dampness, stagnation, and heat, mm-hmm. like without a doubt, mm-hmm. right? It's just right there on the tongue. It's staring at you. Now, how much heat? What do you do about it? These are obviously the big questions. Right. But when you're messing with those levers, don't neglect the heat factor, right? Yeah. Even if the stool isn't very malodorous, even if there isn't any bleeding, okay, that means you don't have to knock it the hell out with mounds of Huanglian, yeah. right? But there might still be some Huangbai or even a little dash of Huanglian in this formula sure. because the tongue is cracked and it's red, right? Yeah. There's some heat there that needs managing. I think the the tongue diagnosis, like where it's mentioned in the different texts we have is interesting. Like in the Shanghan Lun, you hear very little about the tongue, mm-hmm. only in specific patterns, like a Jirtsa pattern, for example, you'll see the tongue mentioned. Or, But for the Wenbing tradition, when there's like a heat, like a really strong heat presentation, mm-hmm. that's when they start looking at the tongue because in febrile disease, like when you have... Uh, 
Ebola or like some really serious viral thing. And the person could like literally die in a day by sweating too much, sure. right? They have like extreme Yangling condition. Their tongue is going to change really fast. Of course. And yeah. it's going to, it's going to, you know, subside really fast. But I think that's a valuable thing to know for people getting into the clinic is that like you may be treating somebody for a digestive problem and look at the tongue and be like, well, why, you know, they, they seem like they're doing better. Why hasn't the tongue changed? Right. And there's, there's cases, um, too, of uh, um, different famous people talking about treating really bad, like, skin conditions and stuff, where they treat them for seven, eight months. They look back at the tongue, and the tongue is the same, hmm. right? And you would, you'd be like, why, why is the tongue the same, right? Right. And most of the time, it won't be like that. But sometimes it is, and I feel that's the similar with the pulse, like, most of the time. You know, the pulse changes like you would expect it to. If the mm -hmm. person's getting better, the pulse follows. But there's always times when you feel the pulse or maybe when you look at the tongue and you're like, WTF, like, why isn't it different than it is? And then if the person's symptoms are changing, right, if they're still getting better, then it means we're on the right track still. So I think diagnostic symbols are, are good to study and interesting to study and also, it's important that we don't get too dogmatic about one thing yes. being everything for us, right? Even if the pulse is my thing, I still palpate the abdomen and I still ask questions. Mm -hmm. Even though the, you know you like the tongue, you're still paying attention to the body type. You're still asking questions. There's different things we check in on for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to point out. I mean, the tongues are slow. I mean, of course, Ebola is a different story, right? So yeah. if anybody <laughs> out there is treating Ebola in their clinic, like props to you. <laughs> But super intense conditions that can kill you rapidly, of course, yeah. will force the change. The thing about digestive illness is that it absolutely does not kill you rapidly. Right. Right. I mean, if anything, it is the slowest possible degradation <laughs> to like what's going on. So, of course, your tongue is going to show that right. change slowly. It, it took 15 years for your tongue to look the way that it looks now. It's going to take a little while for it to change. But that's what I like about it is it actually gives me insight into what's underlying situations. So one of my favorites is actually center tongue crack, right? So center, yeah. center tongue crack, um, you'll have a lot of people when you do your interview with them, they won't have malodorous stool. They won't have um, hemorrhoids or bleeding. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, maybe they run a little warm or whatever. So there's definitely some heat, but it just doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. Like the dampness and the stagnation is going to stand out more. And then they stick out their tongue. And there's a pretty obvious center crack that maybe even is like kind of deep. Yeah. Right? And that doesn't necessarily tell me that there's heat in the way that a bright red tongue would and bleeding sure. at the rectum would, right? But it tells me that the stomach yin is being destroyed mm -hmm. in some way, right? And the most common thing I see in people with chronic damp stagnation is that there's damp heat living in that sort of stomach, small intestine space. Right. And it's just low grade burning up that yin. Yeah, sure. Right? And that can look like a weaker stomach for digestion. So like when people say, oh, I eat things and it doesn't agree with me, like I have indigestion, that can be a stomach yin problem. Right. It can also be low grade occasional sensitivity with like anal tissues where things can get hot really easily, especially mm. from wiping. Mm -hmm. That is this low grade heat, which mm. is there, right? And so I look at the tongue and I see this center crack and almost irrespective of what else I'm writing, I'm thinking I probably should put some mime and dog in this, mm, right? Because mm -hmm. mime and dog is just a great 
relatively easy to digest stomach yin supporting sure. formula. This one of the few places that I do a little bit of sort of like rote, like, oop, stomach crack, center crack, tongue crack, oop, mime and dong, right? Mm -hmm. Almost always I include it. Now, how much depends on the rest of the case, uh -huh. right? But almost always I'm going to be like, ooh, need a little mime and dong, right? right. There's yeah. probably other herbs you could use for that, but I, I really like it. It travels to the stomach. It's not overly sticky, but it supports stomach yin. Yeah. It's a great herb for it. It makes sense. What about like, do you find that... Um... So for me, I, I see a lot of where there's fluid disharmony, like the body mm -hmm. isn't able to process fluid. Mm -hmm. And then it seems like the fluid moves out of like the nutritive layer or the physiologic yin layer, for lack of a better term, right? So there's dampness that's accumulating, but that dampness seems to be a result of a process where water just doesn't transform and go to the right place. Mm -hmm. So what do you like, do you, do you see stuff like, like, is that part of your differentiation as well? Yeah, it's really common. So this is the crazy thing where you'll see like someone's clearly damp and there's fluid in weird places, but then like they're always thirsty. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. Always mm -hmm. thirsty or they're crazy damp. I can smell it in the room and their bowels, like their stool is hard. Yes. Yep. And you're like, hmm, okay. Yeah. So I will say that the way that I think about this is I think it's hard to move the fluids back where they need to go once they're in the wrong place. Yeah. You have to get rid of the ones that are in the wrong place uh -huh. and then encourage the physiology when they process, when the body processes fluids next gotcha. to put them in the right place. Okay. Right? Yeah. That makes sense. I used to think about it as like, oh, well, there's all this moisture like in their tongue, but not in their mouth. That makes sense, right? It's like, right. tongue's all swollen and weird, but they're so thirsty. Like, yeah. can I just like, I don't know, squish it out of their <laughs> tongue into their mouth, like with herbs, you know? Like, no, man, it doesn't work like that. So like yeah. all this fluid, like they've got edema in the lower leg. Yes. Like, well, how can I get the fluid from the lower leg to the mouth? Like, no, no, no. Get the fluid out of the lower leg. Right. And then fix the, the pathology to encourage physiology so that there's moisture where it needs to be. Right. right. But it does come up a lot. Right. Yeah. And this this gets us to. So now we've laid out these levers. Right. So we had the, the quality of the chi deficiency mm -hmm. or not, the dampness, the stagnation and the heat. Right. Yeah. And in the case I just described, the heat factor is, you know, there's a center tongue crack, like I mentioned, but it's not very hot. There's not hemorrhoids. Right. There's not foul odor. So the heat part isn't very large. So now I got to think to myself, like, OK, what am I going to do with this person? Yeah. Right. What is the what is the next step? For me, when I'm looking at my profile, the dampness and the stagnation are high, right? Yeah. They're top of the list. The reason there's dampness and stagnation is because of a deficiency, mm -hmm. right? And now you get into the art. This is the art of it all, right? Because obviously, in order to solve the problem long term, you got to fix the deficiency, mm -hmm. but you got all this excess sitting on top, right? right? So my go-to for this pattern is Pingwei-san. Yeah. Right. I love Pingwei-san. I think it's an amazing formula. Yeah. If you can take it as an actual san. Like if you have a pharmacy near you who can grind up some fresh, high quality pingwei-san, just smell it. You'll just be like, wow, it's so aromatic. It's great. It's so bright. Yep. It's very drying. Yep. Right? It's very transformative and it kicks the butt of excess dampness. Yes. Right? Very quickly. However, it is dry. Yeah. Right? And so when people have fluid problems, which is often the case with damp accumulation and stagnation and the metabolic issues that we've been talking about. You got to be careful how dry you make someone, right? Right. You can't just like, all right, I want you to take 30 grams of pingwei-san a day for the next two weeks. Like those people will be dry. Their yep. sinuses will hurt. Their nose will get crusty. Yep. 
He's super thirsty. You right? get like um I remember I I dried myself out with a Shichang Pu formula, mm-hmm. like a Ding Jirwan sort yeah. of yeah. modification back in the day. And I had this like I took the formula and within an hour I had this dry spot in the back of mm-hmm. my throat that I could not quench. No. Like I just Jug- got, chugging yeah, water. Chugging right? water. Yeah. No, can't do it. Could not get it. Uh-huh get it taken care of and i got sick the very next day yeah because i i created some kind of vacancy in my you know my system there so um yeah so that that's a, that's well taken i think so the thing is is that you have to then place something like pingwei san into a constellation of your treatment right yeah. so in this case that i've described i would probably reach i mean oldie but goodie but Sujensatan, uh-huh. right? Sujensatan yeah. is such a simple formula. It's four ingredients. Like, it's easy to manage. And, of course, Liujensatan has Bancha and Chenpi added to it, right? And so mm-hmm. you end up with those drying aspects of that. So I will say that I think of this as Sujensatan plus Pingwei-san is mm-hmm. the relationship. Of course, Pingwei-san has Chenpi in it, and so that's there. And so, like, right. which formula is it really? Yeah, is it yeah, Liujensatan yeah. plus Pingwei-san? I don't Who cares? <laughs> Conceptually, the idea is you need to do something for the spleen chi, which Sajensatang will. You need to encourage that diuretic process mildly because we're going to be drying with the pingwei-san piece. Right. So if you build a formula that's full of diuretics, fuling, zushia, juling, like you open up the floodgates, you're going to send moisture down and out through the bladder channel. If you put on top of that herbs, like I literally think of when you were in grammar school, if someone, I don't know if they did this everywhere, but like if someone vomited when I was in like mm-hmm. middle school, like the janitor had a bucket of kitty litter. Yeah. And they would like dump oh, the kitty yeah. litter. I don't know how frequently people were vomiting now that I think about it. It's like he had like a bucket <laughs> of kitty litter and it would just like immediately suck yeah. up the moisture and kill the smell. Right. Right. Which was the, the reason that he had it there. And then you would just literally scoop up the kitty litter and then wipe it down. It's right. way less messy than right. if you had to like sop it up you know, yeah, with, yeah. with towels. Weirdly, I think about Pingwei-san like that. Oh. So like Pingwei-san's drying function yeah. is that it comes into a thing and it sucks the moisture into it. Yeah. Right. It's like sucks uh-huh. it all up, which is why if you overdo it, like I had a patient once describe who I gave too much pingwei-san. She described her sinuses as being crunchy. Yeah. Right. She yeah. like pressed on her <laughs> face and was like, oh, they're so like crunchy. And that's because pingwei-san pulls moisture from mucous membranes and damp tissues and interstitial space. It it sucks it up. Right. right? And places it in, in this case, the middle jowl and lets you excrete it. Right. Right. And in my experience also excretes it, excretes it through the colon through the large intestine yeah. as opposed to your fooling, zishia, juling combination, which will go out through bladder. Right. Right. So if you're not careful when you build this formula, you're going to send fluid out through bladder. You're going to send fluid out through, yeah. through large intestine and the person's going to be so dry. They're going to be very dry. Yeah. And they'll be very uncomfortable. Yep. Sometimes they'll end up with abdominal pain. Yep. Right. Because they're so dry. So Sajinsatang as say 40, 50, 60% of the formula, and 40%, so let's do 60% Sajinsatang, 40% Pingwei-san, mm-hmm. right, is for the patient I've described who's kind of middle of the road, right? right? Like their cheese not crazy weak, the dampness is there, but it's not incredibly, they don't have erectile dysfunction, they're not like unable, they're not super demotivated, 
they're just a little wet and stagnant and there's not a lot of heat that's the ratio right right you're doing mostly chi support but you know not crazy and then you're drying out up here with with the penguin sun right right yeah and that's going to open up some breathing room for the patient key element we're talking about using herbs here for this problem that's going to help dry up that stool yeah it's going to firm it up a little bit more yeah right it might even help with the frequency the first thing that we're going to see those is firming and then frequency change that's yeah. usually what i see okay that's stool, a good distinction stool gets tighter first mm -hmm. and then it becomes less frequent uh -huh. because okay. what will happen then is that that first bowel movement in the morning there's enough chi to completely move the fully formed stool out uh-huh right right and so boom they have a great golden poop in the morning and everything's great but until that stool gets tightened up right right their spleen can't recover enough there's still too much dampness in the system right spleen can't recover enough in order to actually push the stool out in the way that we would want right right cool okay so we have two archetypes of formulas for these issues so if we have the like the split the, the chi deficiency category we mm -hmm. have our sajun as the archetype mm -hmm. formula for that and then mm -hmm. pingwei san being the archetypical formula for dampness mm -hmm. Um, and then in this case, we're kind of combining them together at different ratios, depending on what's taking place. Correct. Right. Okay. Correct. So then let's say you have um, more heat in the picture, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So very similar case, but there's a little bit more heat in the picture. What would that look, what does that look like um, in the symptomology usually? So in this case, in this exact case that we're talking about, what we would probably see is a occasional burning with defecation. Okay. Uh -huh. Right. Which is made worse by the consumption of spicy food. Ah. Uh -huh. Right. Now right. everybody, if you eat spicy food, is going to feel it. Everybody right. knows. Sure. That. But even just mildly spicy food, right. the stool will become uh, more frequent and looser. Right. And it'll burn a little. What about alcohol? Same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. but that's what I see is if people have just a little bit of alcohol, like. Mm -hmm. I can't drink. I used to be able to drink a little bit of wine with my dinner. And now if I have even a little bit, I just have, yeah. you know, loose stool. That's a little loose hot. Stool that's a little hot. The next yeah. yeah. So that's like mild level heat, right? Yeah. As that grows in intensity, we can start to see uh, consistent burning with defecation, regardless mm -hmm. of what they eat. There could also be bleeding upon wiping. So that means we're having small right. capillary breaks. There could be, a new, you know, we're increasing intensity here and then you can get all the way to hemorrhoids and then all the way to anal fissures even, right? Right, where that yeah. heat is just getting completely out of control. Usually as that escalates, we also start to see pain, uh -huh. right? So right. the dampness has stagnated, which caused the heat, and now the heat and the dampness are stagnating each other in this yes. awful feedback loop, this damp heat feedback loop. And this is where we get to colitis, ulcerative colitis. Uh -huh. This is that space, yeah, right? Sure. So the dampness, the weakness in the spleen, promoted the dampness, which stagnated, which became hot. And then those two things are now feeding on each other, right. further weakening the spleen, yep. further contributing to the dampness, further building the heat. And now all of a sudden we have ulcerations in the colon. Yeah. You could have polyps growing, you have cancerous issues, all kinds of stuff comes downstream from that escalation in heat. Right. Yeah. And completely unmanaged in like the worst case scenarios, the heat will eventually become toxic heat. And yeah. now we have like a real problem, right. like a real, real then problem. Then you have abscess and bleeding. Yeah. And, and now we have like surgeries and yeah. sections of your colon being removed and all kind of stuff. Right. Right. So the heat factor is where things in my experience tend to escalate. Gotcha. Right. Yep. Into really what we 
quote-unquote serious problems. I mean, like having bad poops, I think, long-term is a serious problem. But like when you're having stabbing abdominal pain and blood in your stool, that tends to send people to the emergency room. Right. Right. So then, so from a symptomological perspective, we have those things taking place. What do we do? What do you think herbally to transition? Like, is there an archetype for more heat in the, like with the, Mm. you know, like we had before with the other two? So there are... So, I mean, if you, if you go into the Bensky right of the Chen, there's these, there are archetypal formulas for this that are usually Huang formulas. Um, I don't usually think about it that way. I think about them as individual single herbs or clusters of herbs that'll add into the other formula, right? Right. It depends also, I will say, on the level that you're dealing with. So in our case that we're talking about, let's, we've added in a little bit of heat, right? So our patient periodically has burning with the stool and, right. you know, whatever. I'm going to take that same Sajintatang Pingwei-san, and I'm going to stick a little bit Huangli in it, mm-hmm. or maybe a little Jirtsa, okay. or maybe a little Huangchen, Huangbai, Huangli, and triple Huang approach, right? Oh, okay. And that can yeah. depend on what the other factors are. But like right. in this simple case that I'm talking about, I'd actually probably just start with some Jirtsa. Okay. Right? Because yeah. it's not very strong. It's not, yeah. it's intermittent. The tongue's not red. I'm going to put some Maimondong in this formula because he has a center crack. I'm going to put a little bit of jerts at like, like 3%, maybe less. Just a, just, just a, a little ta- just a little taste. taste. Yeah. yeah. And if anybody's ever had jerts before, jerts is pretty bitter, yeah. right? And it stands out a lot in a formula. Like yeah. even if you put 3% of jerts in the formula, like, oh, this is a little bitter. Right. right. Um, and even more so with Huang Lian, right? right? I think of, so let's talk a minute about the Huangs. Since we're talking about heat, I think yep. this is an important one. A lot of digestive formulas, you'll see combinations of of Huang Chen, Huang Bai, Huang Lian in various iterations. You can read a lot of people's opinions on like where they work and how, right? I think the sort of classic example that Huang Chen is a little bit upper, mm-hmm. right? Whereas Huang Bai is a little bit lower mm-hmm. and Huang Lian tends to work in the guts, mm-hmm. I think is pretty accurate, yeah. right? So if you've got, you know, upper respiratory tract infection, probably Huang Chen, right? If you've got bladder infection, genito urinary problems, probably Huang Bai. You got something in your guts, probably Huanglian. Mm-hmm. In practice, a lot of them just get combined, right? right. Because like, you yeah, know, formulas combine them. You get a yeah. Ban Sha Xie Xin Tong, you have Huang Chen, Huanglian, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And like, if you if you have access to a bulk formula, I would or a bulk pharmacy, I would definitely recommend go and check this out. Go and taste them. Yeah. Because yeah. they're really different. Like, yes, they're all bitter. They're all yellow, although actually really good Huanglian is actually almost orange yeah. in coloration. <laughs> um but Huanglian is crazy bitter. Yeah. Like crazy, crazy bitter. Like not quite long down sao bitter, but like pretty close. So it's amazing for quickly just uh, obliterating heat accumulation in the guts, right? That at a small percentage, and frankly, in my opinion, only when the heat is strong enough to warrant it because it's right. very cold. Yep. And so you can throw that into a situation and actually exacerbate lower jowl problems if you're not judicious about its use. Right. So sense. I start with jertsa because jertsa isn't like a, it's not a lower jowl herb or anything, but it's, it's sort of heat from stagnation works in all three jowls. Mm-hmm. Like it's a kind of good starter herb mm-hmm. for heat. That's a probably a byproduct of damp accumulation. Yeah. Right. Okay. So just poof, little jertsa, mm-hmm. right? Patient comes back to me and says, um, yeah, I feel a lot better. You know what I mean? My, you know, they take, here's the other thing, expectations. How much turnaround are we talking about? Not a week. Yeah. A week is yeah. not enough time. Okay. Yeah. Right? So I write the formula for one week as a tester just to make sure this isn't going to like completely knock them off, 
you know, their normal path. And then they come back and say, yeah, it was well tolerated, no issues. I feel okay when I take it. Awesome. Take this for three more weeks and let me see you after a month. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's important, yeah. right? Because digestive stuff is slow. It's going to take some time. When they come back in in a month, now I'll also say in the intervening time, I probably would have sent them home with a food journal. Yeah. Right? So when they come back at that week, you know, they've had the herbs for a week. They filled out a food journal for the week. I'm going to look at it. Assuming that its formula was well tolerated, we don't need to talk about the herbs so much, their, their case anymore. I'm going to take most of the time in that meeting and talk about their food. Yeah. Right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Because my goal is digestive herbs in a non-acute flare situation. What I mean is like you're not currently in stabbing abdominal pain with bleeding poops every time you eat, right? But you have something else going on. What my goal is with herbs is to essentially give your spleen and your middle jowl enough bandwidth to start to recover. Yeah. Right? There is no amount, I'm going to stress this heavily, there are no amount of herbs on the planet that can overcome problematic dietary habits. That's so true. Period. Yeah. Like, you can take these herbs and you can start to feel better, but if you don't start to make changes... These herbs will only ever be a holding pattern. Yeah. It will never solve the problem. If you stop taking them, everything will come back. And at some point, their ability to, to change the pattern for the better will diminish. Yeah. Like they won't yeah. always be good because the problem's getting worse. The herbs are just holding, they're like pressing up against the dam, being like, don't break, don't right. break, you know, but like it will at some point. So, you know, all the way back to when we first started and I said, don't moralize your food choices. I stand very strongly by that, but that also doesn't mean you don't have to do anything about it. Right. Right. It's slow. It's habits. It takes time. So I, I talk with patients a lot about that in the second round, right? Yeah. <clears throat> what are we talking about in Chinese medicine? What does nutrition really look like? And I will say that that is an unbelievable rabbit hole for all the practitioners out there. A lot of books, a lot of discussion, a lot of people disagree. A lot of stuff that you can recommend to people. There's like there's all these Chinese medicine nutrition cookbooks, right? Like oh my god! Ancient, ancient wisdom, modern kitchen, right. which I will say actually is a great book if you already know how to cook and you only want to eat Asian food. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but like most people don't. So like yeah. if you tell someone like, oh, I need you to eat more millet and some lotus root, or this is something I see all the time for nutrition. People will hand a patient a list of foods. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay, so we need to have more burdock and uh, spinach and winter melon. And it's just a list, right? Y'all, nobody knows what the hell to do with that. Right. That is worthless advice. I'm just going to come out and say it right now. It's worthless advice. Yeah. Like telling someone they just need to eat more millet, who mostly eats like spaghetti and meatballs and gets a burrito from the food truck, is worthless advice. Yeah. So if you're going to get into nutrition, which you need to if you're doing digestive work, you need to start figuring out what for yourself is going to be helpful. Over the years that we've been at Root and Branch, I've created recipes. I've created explainer packets. So it's like, yep. this is a damp heat diet. What is damp heat? What does it look like? How does it represent in your condition? These, here's some lists of foods. I do still include lists. These are foods that we want to minimize. That's right. the way that I use things. Minimize. Yep. I never tell people, don't eat this. It's bad for you. It's going to hurt you. Because remember, as we know, in Chinese nutrition, in Chinese medicine, there is no bad food. Right. It doesn't exist. There are just foods that will make your problems worse right. now. Exactly. But maybe not in the future. Yeah. Right? So here's the list of foods that you should minimize. 
here's a list of foods you should maximize. Here are five recipes yeah. that use these things, right? That you can cook on your own. Here is a menu. I give people a week menu, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Here's a breakdown. So in my damp heat packet, it's like, okay, here's damp heat explanation. Here's how you should conceptualize your food. It's mostly vegetables with a little bit of grain and a tiny bit of meat. Here are good vegetables that'll help drain the dampness. Because again, you've already given them the theory. You explained it to them in the beginning. You walk them through macro rules, right? Now here's some specific content. Here's some recipes. Here's a menu. Right. Right. That information. Now, how many of my patients really use it? Mixed bag, right? <laughs> it's a mixed bag. Even with all that work, it's a mixed bag. But I feel better handing someone an actual plan. Yeah. Because then we can talk about implementing a plan. If right. I give you a list of ingredients that says you should eat more millet and burdock root, what's their expectation that that's really going to do anything? Yeah. Maybe you went to the Asian store by your house and you bought a burdock root and you got home and you're like, what the hell do I do with this? Right. 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 So now you're frustrated and I'm frustrated and nothing's changing in digestion. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's one of the places that you need to talk to people about it. So, okay. Write the formula for a week. They come back. Everything's great. We spend most of the time talking about the food. And then I say, now go and practice. Yeah. Right. Go home, you know, eat and be merry. Like I want you to just <laughs> go and take your herbs and I want you to play with this stuff. And I remind them like, look, I want you to practice with making these changes in the diet. Don't try to do it all at once. I usually set up a plan, an incremental plan with people. Okay, and this week we want to try this. Then two yeah. weeks later we want to try this, right? Try and create something that's accomplishable. Success in digestive matters is, is in of course, dependent on good diagnosis and a good formula. But a lot of it has to do with helping people reframe their narrative, like we talked about in the beginning. Reframe the idea of, like, what is my relationship to food? What is my appetite like? How do I decide what to eat and when? Where does it fit in my schedule, right? If you try to give that to everybody that you see all at once, it almost never works. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's too it's, much. It's too much. In fact, we, we maybe we should have an extra episode where we just talk about food and dietetics. Yeah, that'd be Because I think, I think a lot of practitioners out there would like to use more Chinese medicine principles for dietetics, but mm -hmm. don't, don't really know where to begin. Like, oh, uh, they have a damn problem, so don't eat dairy and don't eat sugar. Like, right. it's about as far as you get. But or, here, have some kanji. It's yeah. easy to digest. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Travis K has a thing against uh, kanji. kanji. He does not, not a big kanji fan over here. It's disgusting. <laughs> I know all you kanji lovers out there. Ugh, can't do it. And you know what's funny? Rice is like my favorite food. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rice and potatoes, like my favorite food. But kanji, yeah. can't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that would actually be a great idea. Give people some more ideas specifically about how to use it because it right. is a huge i mean it's an entire sub-discipline right it, it is really, it really it, is it, it, it is and like when i speak to my patients about food i try to make suggestions simple and pivotal like i try mm -hmm. to find little things that i can say okay i want you to try this this week do yep. this and and that seems to be better than to do the whole Unless it's a particular type of person, right? That that they're like, all right, like I'm I'm list. ready. Yeah, I want to, yeah, yeah. you know, come but to, that's come to rare. Jesus. Yeah, that person sort of is thing. so rare. Very very rare. The other thing I would say is, if you don't want to talk to your patients about food at all, it's worth finding somebody else that you can refer to who will, who will do it in a way. And this is where we've had trouble. Yeah. <laughs> who will do it in a way that's in concert 
with Chinese medicine principles. Very difficult to find. There's a lot of people who will, you know, well, I don't want to, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole about that, but just, you know, suffice it to say, there's a lot of ideas about what somebody should or should not be eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and bring, and, and, and that's an important factor. You, you really have to, when it comes to digestive disorder, because food is going to be part of the conversation, it's really important upon, like, for the point of view from the practitioner to approach that interaction with compassion and with understanding and recognizing that your patient has been told 40 different ways that they should eat. Yeah. Right. There's this fad diet, there's whole 30, there's whatever, you know, paleo and then, you know, a blood type diet and there's just a million things. Weight loss and wellness is a multi-billion dollar industry in America. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry globally. Like there's a lot of money made in telling people, buy my book, eat this way, follow this YouTube channel. Right. Right. And and I mean, I guess we're also telling people how to eat. So whatever. But like my point being is that you need to approach that interaction with the patient with compassion and understand that like they don't know what you know. They don't understand the principles at play. um, And they're hearing a lot of different stories. And so you got to feel ashamed and they feel ashamed. Usually people feel shame. Yeah, because they because they're failing. That's yeah. the way they think about it, right? Oh, I'm failing. I, I, you know, I see other people who are thinner than me, who don't have these issues, who, who don't have to run to the bathroom. Like clearly, my willpower is wrong. There's a lot of cultural shame wrapped into it. So, bringing compassion into the mix, I think, really matters a lot. And I mean, you're not deprecating, you're not pandering, but you're compassionate. You're holding good professional space, like right. for those people, which I think really is important. And I want to also rehit on what you said there about simple, but um, impactful yeah. advice, pivotal, pivotal, like something that Ooh, can make a pivot. It's a great word. Yeah. My, my big one with that is cold raw food. Yes. Right. So like so many people who have, oh man, we're going to piss so many people off. I know. This. I know. I'm sorry, raw foodists out there, but your shit's messing with people. Smoothie. I know. Stop. Some, some people can, right. I mean, here's the thing. If you have a smoothie every morning, yeah. right. And your poops are great and you're energized and everything, you don't need to do what I'm telling you. Right. You don't have a problem. Right. Right. But if you have seven poops a day and they're loose and your energy is low and you're uncomfortable and you have a smoothie for breakfast every morning, you need to stop. Yeah. Stop with the smoothie. Yep. Right? This, I'm going to say it again. There are no bad foods right. in Chinese medicine. There are foods that will make your bat, your your situation better or worse. Right. So if you don't have any problems and you have a smoothie, good for you. You're going to have a smoothie. Right? Yeah. Many of us cannot do that. Yeah. Right? And the thing is, is that people make their smoothie and they're like, oh, but it's full of all the good stuff. Right. Well, it's got 12 vegetables in it and the green powder and the red powder and the whatever magic mushroom mix. Yep. And, you know, I don't know. You're just going to just, yeah. When I, when I drink this going one out smoothie, in an hour. <laughs> I get enough vegetables. Like you couldn't eat this many vegetables in five days. Right. <laughs> and you're like, well, you probably shouldn't drink that. Then, right? Like that's just, that's too much. Right. You know what I mean? Why do we think we need so much more? Right. Right. Is a whole nother another thing entirely which you just need what you need yeah you just need what you need Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so cold raw is i think that's one of the biggest ones for people who eat too much cold raw yeah uh salad you know is another big one people obsessed with salads you know i have a huge salad at lunch every day it's so healthy right um probably not in january actually not for you right it's cold you know season so again this gets us into the details of like how we determine that but targeted simple instructions tiered approaches for patients don't give them everything at once right your herbs are giving them the bandwidth to expand into the space to start to make change and then the real heavy lifting the actual long-term heavy lifting is lifestyle change sure that's really where the work is right now 
let's talk about if we have a more serious condition. So, I, but, but, but before oh, yeah, we sure. get into that, I wanted to ask because you mentioned Pingwei san, yeah. right, as yeah. one of the archetypical formulas that it's that it's powerful as a san. We've had amazing results with Pingwei san as a san. Yeah. I think we should talk about how that's administered and what the difference is in cost, how to give it to somebody. Um, the length of cooking time is uh -huh. another thing that's uh -huh. important that people will find interesting. So why don't you talk a little bit about that first? So in general, broad spectrum concepts for sans in general compared to decoction has to do with the grind of the herb, mm -hmm. right? So if you think about it, you make pingwei san from whole herb and you put it in a in the decoction pot and you cook it. In order to extract well from that, those herbs which are big hunks of stuff you have yep. to cook them right yep. they have to be hydrated and they will be cooked 20 30 minutes maybe double boil that length of cooking will extract deeply from the herb but it will also cook out some of the yang qualities of that herb right that sort of cutting aromatic yes strong chi quality will be boiled off right? right even if you didn't boil it hard or whatever it doesn't matter like it's just that much exposure to heat for that much time boils off right right in the case of a properly made san, and the way that we grind them up here, we sort of do a coarse grind. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a little more than a crush, but not really a grind, and not a powder. And the reason is because I don't like drinking it. Yeah, like, right. The truth of the matter is, like, it goes through a fine mesh sieve if it's ground up really small, and then I have to drink it, and it's gross. Um, a lot of people are like, but you have to drink the san. No, you don't. A million opinions about this. I don't think you need to. We get great results we, without it. Yeah. Like, you don't need to drink the powder. It's gross, right? So you crush it up into, you know, small bits, and then you have two options. You can, the, the quickest way, you know, I keep Pingwei San in a jar at home if I'm having a little digestive stuff myself. And then I'll put, you know, usually between 9 and, I guess, 16 grams into a serving, mm -hmm. right? Now, obviously, depending on the grind, the volume will be different, a tablespoon or two, something like that, right? Just to give you a rough idea right. about how much that is. So I'll put, let's say, 12 grams into a pot. I'm going to cover it with 12 to 16 ounces of water. I'm going to bring it to a boil, drop it to a simmer, simmer it for five minutes, strain and drink. Right. Right. Easy. Right. right. You don't have to boil it that way, though. Another equally effective way to do it is to put your powder into a thermos, like yeah. a double-walled insulator thermos. Boil some water in the kettle, pour it into the thermos, right? Probably about 30% more volume than you want in the end because some of it's going to get absorbed by the powder right. right so if you want to drink 12 ounces in the end you should probably put about 16 ounces in there and then you seal it up top and let it sit on the counter now minimum time probably half an hour to overnight yeah you can right soak that sucker overnight if you want right, right? um i think it's i mean if i need pingwei san right now practically the boil method is the easiest yeah sure for a patient who's taking it consistently though as part of their um, regimen the soaking method is actually probably easier because then it fits into yeah. their, their rhythm. The, you know? the, the thermos method seems to be, and we're, we're playing around with this now with different formulas mm -hmm. and stuff, but it seems to be relatively contained to not boil off too much extra yeah. stuff, right? No, I don't think we lose anything. But there. but one of the cool things that I'm, I'm thinking of, particularly a case, um, one of yours and one of mine with that was a Pingwei-san case a while ago, a uh, good friend of mine's wife came in after having some kind of an infection. Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember the context, but she was really suffering body aches and fever and all kinds of stuff going on. And I looked at her tongue and her tongue was, her tongue coating was so thick. It was like tofu. Wow. And I 
like I remembered, I don't remember who was talking about it, but tofu like tongue coating pingwei san was like mm-hmm. what came up mm-hmm. in my memory. I was like, okay, we're gonna do pingwei san. We're gonna do it the the real way. We're gonna grind it up into a san. We're gonna give it. And the other the other benefit of this, by the way, is it's much cheaper, like way cheaper than granules, way more effective, hundred percent. Like you'll you'll be surprised at how effective it is. And I had her take it, you know, just like uh, Travis Kern described a moment ago and had her report back to me. And she took it the first two days and was doing much, much better. And then the third day she took it and she was starting to feel a little dry. Right. Mm. So what I had her do is I actually had her cook it for longer. Right. Now, why? Like instead of doing five minutes, do it 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so she did that, and then she was able to take it like for the remainder of that week mm-hmm. and continue to feel better and better. Mm-hmm. So that longer cook actually makes the formula weaker mm-hmm. at transforming because you're cooking off more of the properties, yeah, right? Absolutely. So that's another way you can sort of play with San is the, the the amount of time you're you're cooking for, right, will change the differential of effectiveness, especially for a formula that's bitter and pungent and aromatic like Pingwei San. Yeah. Whereas Wuling San may be a little different. different no, situation. in fact, with Wuling San, it'd be interesting to play with that actually. Like Wuling San might actually, like a longer cook might get you more right. than yeah. a shorter cook. Like anything that's aromatic, right? Yeah. Like when you smell Pingwei San, I swear, if you guys can, go and get some Pingwei San ground. The smell is amazing. Anything that smells like that will be diminished in drying yang capacity with longer cooking. Yeah. It's just what's going to happen. Yeah. Like, the yang aspects of herbs are by their nature effervescent. Yep. Like they will disappear like yep. into the ether and heat will drive them off. Right. And that doesn't mean we're not suggesting you need to eat that shit raw. Right. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Just because things are changed by heat doesn't mean heat's bad and everything should be raw. It just gives you um, an idea about how that stuff changes relative to dosage and relative to cooking time and all that kind of stuff. But the San piece is huge. You know, nobody writes so many few or so few people actually take Sans as Sans, right? right. I mean, it just doesn't seem to happen that much. And I think people are really missing out. Right. Right. And there's so much discussion that like, well, bulk herbs are expensive, right? And that's true. Decoction is expensive, man. Like a, yeah. a full seven days of like a properly dosed Shao Chai Yutong, oof, expensive. Yeah. But that doesn't have to be the case with Sans, right? Um, and Sini San and Pingwei San and all those guys, like you can really, I mean, Basically 12 grams a day of finished Pingwei San here. I mean, it's like a dollar. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like exactly. it's really, it's not expensive. And so that's the kind of thing where you can really do a whole lot with a lot less yeah. if you start to play around with those yep. components, you know? So the last thing I wanted to throw in here, just because it comes up more and more these days, is for more intense applications, right? So yeah, we've been talking about these, these four layers, the Qi deficiency piece, the dampness piece, the stagnation piece, and the heat piece, right? And we've mentioned that the qi stagnation formula, or excuse me, the qi deficiency formula that I think of first is Sajinsatang, the damp transforming piece, Pingwei San, the stagnation piece, which we didn't talk about a lot directly, but um, a lot of times stuff like Pingwei San, because it's aromatic and moving, mm-hmm. can help manage that stagnation. Yeah. But um, don't forget about other delightfully aromatic herbs like sharen right? right which is an amazing herb for just cutting through that damp stagnation yeah 
And then also xiangfu, yeah. right, as another one, especially most uh, bulk xiangfu in particular is vinegar fried. So there's already right. this sort of like sour, acrid quality from vinegar that's in there. And then we talked about some of the heat players, the three huangs, jertsa. When you start to get into more serious acute problems, so like someone's in an ulcerative colitis flare, yeah. right? what does that look like? Basically, everything that they eat causes sharp abdominal pain, yep. right? Their appetite's incredibly low. They tend to be flushed and hot. Sometimes they can even have fever, right? And their bowel movements will be incredibly painful and often bloody, yep. right? And the blood will tend to be bright in color, right? If you've got dark blood in color, right? Now you've actually probably got a bleeding problem further up the line, right? right. And so you've probably got, you know, it could be a lot of things. If someone has dark blood in the stool, you probably want to suggest that they go see their primary care for some sort of scan, yeah. right? Either a colonoscopy or an endoscopy, depending on where the bleed is, um, because there's there's some bleeding upper in the system, right? In the lower jowl situation, when the blood is bright, you've got to do something now to address the heat and the accumulation. The stagnation, or excuse me, the, the qi deficiency that's at the root of this problem is not what you need to focus on right. in an acute flare. Right, right. Yeah. Which seems obvious, but I feel like a lot of people are like, yeah, but we got to get at the root. Yeah. It's like, nope, not right now. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, you will definitely need to get at the root. But for the next week to 10 days to 14 days, we got to get this thing handled. Yeah. Right. And so depending on the scale of that, you're definitely going to be using heat clearers. Right. Definitely mm -hmm. going to be in the Huang space. We're going to start reaching into a different set of herbs. Um uh, my favorite three herb formula that isn't, it's not really a formula name, but it's just the three herbs. Oh, like, Yi Futsa Baijiangsan. Yi Futsa Baijiangsan, which, surprise, is Yi Ren Futsa and Baijiangsan, right? Which Travis and I have this ongoing joke that I think it's funny to call those formula names because it's just a list of what's in the formula, right? But you'll start finding your, your um, formulas will start to lean toward these other spaces, stop bleeding spaces. Yep. Um, bland astringent spaces like right. with Yi Ren and um, uh, uh, Shan Yao right, and stuff right. like that. So you'll find these chalky right. white herbs. Trishurger, like in Tao Hua Tang is one of my favorites for bleeding. Exactly. And I wouldn't say that, you know, I don't like to think about diagnosis as like, well, for ulcerative colitis, we always use this formula. Right. Because right? that's dumb. Like ulcerative colitis can look any number of ways with any number of subtle pieces. So I don't have a specific formula to reach for to say, hey, look at this one first. But I do want to say you need to focus on the excess acute presentation first. So yeah. leave Sejinzatang off the table. Also, Pingwei-san is probably a little bit too warm and acrid and moving for right. that. You're looking to um, transform dampness, stop bleeding, right, and get rid of heat. Yeah. And so that's going to be more in the white chalky herbs, right, mm -hmm. Fuling, Yi Ren, Shan Yao, you're going to be looking at potentially stop bleeding or, because we love Chinese medicine, blood-moving herbs. Right. Because the heat can cause the blood to stagnate, which goes back and forth. Right. So we could have a whole conversation on dealing with those more intense, acute scenarios. Yeah. But a couple of herbs that I want to put into everybody's mind when you're seeing that, right, is Yi Ren, Shan Yao, Fuling, right? Look at Bai Jiang Sao again mm -hmm. um, and how it sort of interacts in that space. There's even some room for IEF in some of those formulas. Yep. Um, and then how are you going to balance your Huangs, right? Are we just trying to transform the heat in the colon itself with Huanglian, or do we need to actually push that heat out with Da Huang? 
right? Mm, yeah. And so Dahuang is almost always going to be in those early stage formulas, maybe just for like three, four days. Right. They don't need to take Dahuang formula necessarily for five days, right? And, you know, a lot of people think about um, Dahuang as a per- an intense purgative, mostly because of like Da Chung Chi Tang. But really, Mang Shao is the thing that's oh, driving yeah. hard on the, the loose liquid bowel. Dahuang is purgative, but it's not like your pants will explode from sure. taking Dahuang. Yeah, like, that's yeah, yeah. so overrated, right? Also, the longer you cook Dahuang, the less potent it is. So if you just use a small amount, short boiled, you're going to get more purgation, right? More heat clearing. Longer cook, less purgation. Right. Pre-cooked, like wine cooked yeah, Dahuang, even less purgation, way. right? But still heat clearing. Yeah. So there's ways to moderate it, just like we were talking about with the, with the Pingwei San. But almost certainly your acute presentation is going to include middle jiao heat clearers one of the huangs plus da huang right. right and then some chalky herbs to manage that sort of damp accumulation and some of the bleeding that's happening there so there's some astringency going on yeah. right so put those into your mix if you've got an acute case in front of you also if you've got an acute case and you're not sure what's going on send us an email right i'm yeah. more than happy to look at a specific case because yeah, yeah, yeah. it you know, we talk in general generalizations in this podcast, right? To just sort of give people a sense of what's going on. But anybody who does what we do knows generalizations can only really take you so far. So what about like um, formula? Like what formulas do you think of for those cases? So we mentioned Yi Futsa Bai Jung San. I yeah. I would say, Such as it is. right? <laughs> from from my from my practice, I'm looking at like Gan Sao Shishin Tong with maybe a mod to a pao jiang instead of a gan jiang. That's a great right? mod, yeah, especially um, if there's a lot of blood. Yeah, if there's a lot of blood, plus the tao hua tang is really good for acute bleeding, mm-hmm. and that's going to be more, um, that's going to be a deeper kind of bleeding, like a more taxed uh, presentation. And then the opposite of that, um, that has like cold involved, there's going to be your yi futsa bai jiang sang, because you have futsa in that formula, as well as the Ren and the um, the Baijung Sao, right? Baijung Sao is going to be cooler, but the Futsa is going to be warmer. So you're seeing like this deeper deficiency that's in place for that formula that needs warming, but you also need to clear the acute heat that's that's coming up with with the, with the formation of the abscess. And that's a great example of mixed pattern. Yeah. Right. Because a lot of know, these patterns are mixed. A lot of them are mixed. Right? And then you can also add to that the, you know, wood overacting completely unmanaged can, in certain people with a tendency toward damp accumulation and other things, find its space here too, right? Sure. Where all of a sudden, like the liver wood factor, the high anxiety stress pattern, that sort of cheese stag pattern, sure, yeah. can spill over into into earth and bring that heat with it. Right. So, you know, Shiaosan could find its way even in a, right. mixed, a mixed pattern there too. So. There's definitely a lot of stuff to consider. I think, you know, for most of the, I'm trying to think about all the cases that I've seen so far for ulcerative colitis, I think almost all of them are qi yang deficient people yeah. who have ended up with enough damp accumulation and stagnation that we got heat from it. Yeah. So the heat clear, so I will probably write something like, the Yi Futsa Bai Jiang San, if we want to think about that as a base, I mean, it's a three-year formula, but like, mm-hmm. okay, that's the base. And then we're going to go from there and say, okay, we need to add in whatever else is in play. So right. probably we've got some Da Huan, probably we're going to add in some Shan Yao, some Bai Ju, some stuff like that. So start cobbling together a formula from com- 
composite parts, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to having like a sort of um, iconic formula as a starting point, right. you know? So, and that's mostly because again, I don't find in my, my experience, at least I haven't seen enough consistency to be like, oh yeah, let's always go for, I don't know what, like, oh, Ping Wei San again, plus Gui Pitang, plus whatever. Like, right. no, yeah, sure. like there's too many moving parts to sort of like figure out what's going on. And the real goal <clears throat> is acute relief. Right. Yeah. Right. And in acute relief, I need something that's going to be punchy and fast and you need to stay on top of it. Right. You need to talk with the patient and to let them know what to expect, you know, that kind of thing. But in many cases, it's like, let's, you know, deal with the, the deep cold in the futsa, mm -hmm. but really everything else in this formula is dealing with the acute presentation. Right. So the futsa in that setup is really like, that's the nod to the root. Right. right? That is the nod. To that's the, the nod to yeah. the root. Everything else that we deal with is the branch. Right. Right. Because that yep. is the real problem. Yeah. And then once that shit is handled, now we can say, okay, let's get back at addressing the root right. problem, which might be a food formula. Right. Right. Because if there's that much cold and you know, yeah. that's maybe the way we need to go. But ultimately, I think for those acute level presentations, um, I have built formulas from collections of singles. Yeah. You know, as a okay. primary, yeah. primary thrust. Okay. Okay. Well, we've gone on and on about a variety of. Yeah. The lower middle patterns. The lower middle patterns. Yeah, lower middle jaw patterns, such as it were. We'll, we'll write a secondary book. Um, <laughs> so we're going to, um, I think we'll hold it here for now, and then we're going to get into some other middle jaw stuff in future episodes, so stay tuned for that. Um, as I mentioned, if you have specific cases that you want to send us for us to take a look at, you can always send an email to info, that's I-N-F-O, at rootandbranchpdx.com. And you can uh, visit our pharmacy website if you're interested as a practitioner out there using our pharmacy to build herbal formulas. You can find that from rootandbranchpharmacy.com. It's all spelled out, rootandbranchpharmacy.com. And uh, you can read about our pharmacy. You can make an account. We ship herbs um, all across the U.S. to Canada and even as far away as Australia. So if mm -hmm. you're out there listening, we can send herbs to all of those places and uh, if you're in a place that's different than that we can probably figure out how to send it to you too so mm -hmm. let us know um, if you have any questions and um i think yeah. that's about it Auntie, if people else? people would have um any topics that they'd be interested like they'd want us oh, to yeah. discuss in the future and to keep our topic job a little bit easier yeah absolutely if, if you, you have like stuff cases out there or something you've been worrying about or yeah just a general discussion mm -hmm. we're always open to new ideas and you can send it to the same email address info at rootandbranchpdx.com um, and we look forward to hearing from you so all right uh i think that's it this is travis kern and travis Cunningham. and thanks for listening to the nervous herbalist we'll see you guys before long see you next time